Yes. Here we are on AD Experience Live. Mr. Benjamin's AD Experience Live to discuss Dune. Dune, you've heard about it. You may not have known about it. All of a sudden, it hit the airwaves. It hit the theaters. Boom. And Dune is out there making everybody go crazy. Everybody go nuts in the science fiction world. So today, we're going to have a little discussion, a four-way discussion with three other people. It's usually just me, but we're going to have not one, not two, but three other people. We're going to have Donnie on. You remember him from before, Donnie Cornwell. We're going to have Andy Lowe on. You remember him from before. And we're going to have Al Boot on. You remember him before. So we're going to have a recurring group of people come back through here and talk about Dune, what it means to society, what it means to science fiction, what we can learn from it, why it's such, the, such a phenomenon and the way that it is. So it should be a pretty interesting discussion. Want to make sure that, I don't know, the four-way discussion even works. So this is how we do things. We're going to do it here live. So it looks so cinematic because I'm like, wow, you look... You look from like a nice grungy planet. Like, uh, yeah, no, it looks cool, man. All right. So, uh, so now that everybody's in here, um, I want to go ahead and offer some introductions up real quick. As everybody knows, I'm Mr. Vin. Yeah, you can cut everything up to here. <laughs> yeah. Can you edit this? Exactly. Fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. So I am Mr. Vinja. Um, I run the ADD Experience podcast uh, that is art, design, and development. And we're always trying to add experience for those of you who wanted to know what that triple entendre was about. Um, I like to talk to creatives, interesting people about interesting things. And Dune is a very interesting phenomenon that's been around a while and it's getting a resurgence. And we think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. So in order of joining and promptness to the podcast, uh, we'll start with Donnie here, Donnie Cornwell. Um, quick little intro on yourself. Um, yeah, I'm a, a game designer and game developer uh, for 20 years, 20 plus years. Uh, been uh, obsessed with science fiction uh, my whole life. Started with Star Wars as a, a kid. And uh, as far as Dune, uh, I know there's much, uh, much more uh, serious fans. I'm sure there's probably a thesis or few that somebody's written and defended on the topic. So I'm definitely not an expert, but um, I'm a journeyman expert on Dune. All right. Have you, uh, have you, have you read through the books? Uh, I've read the Frank Herbert authored books. Okay. You read the Frank Herbert so, authored books. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll go from there. Thank you. Yep. And next up we have Al. Hey, uh, alphabetically, I should have been first. I'm annoyed that I joined second because I was there on your page, man. I was waiting with the, with the trigger thing. Uh, I also am a part of the opening crew of about 20 years of experience in startups, um, uh, mainly startups. So I make web apps and, uh, and mobile apps. Uh, I'm a designer and, uh, most recently as uh, right now, my current gig is, uh, building, uh, an AR app for the construction industry and architecture industry called sitescape.ai. And, um, that's where Bedj and I had a fantastic conversation, um, a few weeks ago about AR and VR and metaverse, all that interesting stuff. Um, my background with Dune is recent, but deep. So, uh, I just barely got into it like two months ago, but I read all six of the, uh, Frank Herbert books. Um, I just started getting into the son's books because, um, um, the tragically Frank Herbert died before the last novel to wrap up that entire sort of Skywalker trilogy, uh, Skywalker saga in essence. 
And, um, and so his son took up the mantle and, uh, I have lots to say about that too. Uh, really interesting story. And, um, so, but very recent. So I all post trailer, the first trailer I saw, I started reading, when I've been reading the books, I've been in this weird place where the casting is perfect in my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, man, Al, you went hard. Oh, man, I, w I went after it because I, uh, we can get into it, but like, basically I couldn't stop raving about it to Benja in our, in our, in our conversation because, um, I love it. I love it. I, I just absolutely love it. So then you, um, had you seen the movie? like the 84 one, or is this your first introduction to it? So I've had vague recollections as a kid. Okay. And after I'd read the first book and the first couple of books, and I was so impatient for this book to come out, I tried to go back and rewatch it. And it was so terrible that I stopped like halfway through. Um, I think, I, to be fair, I think I was also pretty high at the time. So, uh, that usually helps. I, I let that, oh, that makes it better. Yeah. Usually I'm the opposite effect. I, <laughs> that's where I was going with this. And I thought like, maybe I got like a bad batch or some shit. Cause like this should work, but, um, no, it's all like, um, well, that's a different franchise. <laughs> that's what I did wrong. This shit didn't make sense. So there's no work. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's, how do I put it? Like I did watch it. I haven't watched a TV series. Apparently there's a TV series. Yeah, but everything that I've sort of seen starring, um, starring, um, um, oh God, what's his face? Uh, Professor Anna That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and his name. Scottish guy. Uh, McAvoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, basically I, I saw clips of that. I watched half the other thing and I am also, I should say, a big fan of Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve? 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 I'm not friends. Villeneuve. And, uh, and it. From what I understand, the way he described it, the sci-fi movies he's done up until now, he's been offered to do Dune for years. He said, I needed to do Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, et cetera, to prove I could do sci-fi, sort of like build up his chops for doing this. And so from the first trailer on, I was like, no, no, this, okay. the, this is going to be the thing. All right, cool. Well, that's a, that's Alaboot for that. Now we've got, finally, I'm glad, so glad we could have Andy on. I thought we were going to have some weird technical difficulties, but... We made it in. Um, Andy Lowe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay, my name is Andy Lowe. I am a theater director, also a writer, performer, performed performer. And uh, now I'm a theater producer um, in Los Angeles at Swiss Players, one of the longest running uh, theaters of color in the nation. And um, yeah, uh, my, what is it where we're talking about who we are and our relationship to Dune? Yeah, pretty much how you got into Dune or, you know, yeah. So, so yeah, I have zero relationship to Dune itself other than I just saw the movie and uh, was blown away and was very excited. Um, I mean, I remember the original 1984 film, mm -hmm. but, you know, as I've told, you know, at least two of you um, before, like, that was like, I was nine and it was 1984. And it was like, there's a lot of cool, crazy things going on. I have no fucking clue what any of this is and why is this fat guy flying around <laughs> and slamming right that that was it but it's like those there are those scenes that you know even like being thoroughly confused by the movie uh definitely stuck with me like the fat guy flying around and seeing captain picard with like hair riding a worm and you know um what, what else oh sting sting in a sting in a in a you know, in a plastic speedo, you know, I mean, like there's like the nose, the weird little, yeah, the nose things. Yeah. 
uh, uh, you know, I, I remember like there's stuff going on here. I have no idea what's going on. So I've always been interested right. in waiting for someone to do um, a proper thing. I've never read the books. Okay. Uh, I picked up things that I understand why Dune is important to the rest of sci-fi. Yeah. Because everything from Tremors to Star Wars, you know, there's all of this Dune love and how Dune kind of shaped a lot of contemporary sci-fi. Um, so that's really interesting uh, in terms of Denny Vanilla. The, the guy, the <laughs> um, yeah, that guy, <laughs> Villeneuve. I don't think it's Italian. Villeneuve. I loved Blade Runner 2049, uh, and that was going into it with some skepticism, but love for Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner. But I, I, I got very, I was very unhappy with Arrival. Arrival was like very frustrating to me because i was just like if you i felt like if you watched any star trek at all you knew exactly what this movie was about in the first 15 minutes so when it got to the point where it took like two hours to get to the big reveal that the aliens you know miller alert my yeah you're right like the idea of it was like this is i knew that like two hours ago um, we why did we maybe that's why here because i was yeah. like a dummy that sat there going oh that's what's Oh, oh, really? Okay, yeah, it's, yeah. I was, I was, I was like, I was waiting for a bigger reveal, and I was like, wait, we already. I thought we already revealed that. <laughs> All right, so, but no, but I, but I, I love his visual style. I mean, like, I am to his visual style the way uh, Benja is to Snyder's visual style. <laughs> I was, I did not know, I did not hear a Snyder fan. Ben, Ben, I, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, right. I feel like I'm still getting to know you. Wow. And you are either. Wow. <laughs> So yes, uh, that, that's a perfect lead-in. Andy, you are going to be the uh, visual correspondent here. We're going to be talking to you about the the colors and the use of the wong sound and everything. <laughs> um, so Benja, what's your so what's your background to do? Because I remember when we last spoke, you yeah, yeah. you were new to all of it as well, right? Yeah. So I remember the Dune series, um, the Dune mo movie from '84, pretty fondly actually. And as you said, the fat guy flying around. That yeah. burned in my head, and yeah, I really liked it, thought it was weird, but I felt it kind of as a one-off, right? And over the years, I kept hearing people talk about, yo, man, dude, da-da-da-da-da, yo, they're going to have a sci-fi. I'm like, okay, it was kind of an interesting movie way back, but I never yeah. picked up on it until um, much more recently when I heard, you know, uh, Denis Villeneuve was going to be doing this big movie. I was like, okay, now I need to kind of check into this. Um I've had the books sitting here on my on my shelf for a while, like all unplayed games. Still haven't played them, so I've been doing kind of a I don't want to say a crash course, but a crash course on a lot of the Doom stuff, why it matters, um, the why they call it you know like a adult Star Wars, why people say it's really complicated but still adore it. There's a lot kind of that just interested me, and most recently I was talking with Theo and I was thinking. I think sci-fi is on the downturn and then Dune comes out and it's a big success. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Now we have a resurgence. So that's kind of my, my impetus and my, uh, my, my positioning on it right now where I'm at. Um, I saw the movie. I really enjoyed it. Liked a lot of what they were doing and kind of started to get the, the overall, the bigger concepts that are being put into this film and this series that, I didn't really catch on to before. So now I'm coming at it with a, um, a newer appreciation. 
And and for those of us that are watching us visually, by the way, we're paired up perfectly in order to play doubles tennis with, you know, the, the each, <laughs> each team has a newbie and a veteran to the boot yeah. and different specialties. So like, I'm, I'm looking for the cross court forehands here. So, so really quickly, um, it's done, it's done well in, in theaters. So that's, that's a good sign. People are digging it, uh, 40, 40 million plus in the box office opening weekend and the box greenlit for two Yes, today. And that is a, that is a little Hollywood trick. They probably did, you know, where it's like, well, Hey, let's, let's announce it. And then on the second week, we may be able to go ahead and say, we have a part two coming. So people are going to be like, oh, there's a part two coming? Well, gee, yeah. I better go watch the first one. So we'll get a, a bigger I, turn. I love how the announcement week. was like, oh, the HBO exec was like, uh, or Warner Brothers exec was like, oh, we love it so much. It, you know, we didn't wait to see what the numbers are like. It's about the movie itself and how it came out. And I'm like, yeah, you say that after it had a smash opening yeah. weekend and made what it what you were hoping it would make. Yeah, yeah. So let me jump Let me jump in really with the sci-fi question here that um, that kind of everyone's asking. Like, why, for those who don't know, why do you think Dune matters? I mean, it's, isn't it just sci-fi? Why does Dune actually matter? I think we, we could do well by sort of defining sci-fi, right? Go ahead. And I think it's a, a big, big genre, but I think it really, in its core, is about how, uh, what, uh, humans, humanity's place in the future somehow, right? That's kind of its basic. And I think that maybe makes a distinction where it separates the, something like Star Wars, where Star Wars is sort of like cowboys in the future, but it doesn't really examine what humanity's place is in that future, as opposed to Dune, which talks about politics and religion and culture and ecology and the impact of humanity in the future. And I think that's sort of a good distinction to make. That's sort of how I do distinct or, or separate the two in that way. All right. How's that sound to you guys? And there's lots of ways um, to interpret it other than that. I mean, I think, I think yes. Uh, and to, and to yes. And that, you know, I mean, really it's, 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 um, you know, to me, all of this is about uh, creating safe space and allegory, right? Um, 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 very much uh, Herbert is talking about, you know, the realities of, of, of issues in 1960. What was it, 1966 when it was written? 50, 55. Okay. 50s. 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, you know, the future and it's, you know, far off planets to kind of talk about allegorically uh, social issue, issues that are very much of then and also reflect now. I mean, that's why it still has impact uh, is that, you know, all of these these very thinly veiled, um, um, you know, uh, uh, allegories of, you know, Arrakis to Iraq, uh, you know, spice for whether it's coffee or oil, decide, you know, lots of people can debate over, over, you know, what resource that's, yeah. that's, uh, affecting you, you know, or, or, or how it could be the salt trade, right? If you go yeah, back, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, um, you know, the, the, the threads of imperialism, right. Um, um, all of it kind of, kind of come back and keep it relevant and create a space where we can talk about 
demagogues and and you know how how religion or or uh, you know kind of fuels uh, social movements and the danger thereof and so forth. Yeah, I think I think I agree with both of those. Like at uh, at its best, sci-fi both makes me imagine a future while also being like a commentary on today and where we come from. Um, there's a quote on the back of, of my paperback version um, that's the shortest, pithiest um, answer to this that I've seen. And it's a New Yorker quote saying, possibly even more relevant today. That's how I felt about it when I was reading it. was like, I can't believe this was written decades ago. Not, not because it predicted things in the small, like, oh, a computer on your wrist or whatever, but because of the human angle. Like, if you think about when it was written in the 50s, he was clearly looking at sort of uh, World War II Bedouin and how they were being exploited and how they were being used for World War II and then divvied up afterwards for their resources and et cetera. So that makes sense as a starting point. Which, it, that didn't start in World War II. Yeah. It goes way further back. It was perpetual. Sure, sure. Of course. And in World War II, I'll put it, say, like, it came to a head, right? It came to, like, yep. like these imperial forces, like, uh, uh, conflicting on top of the, the this indigenous um population which um there the book goes so there's two answers like why is this book important and then why is it so interesting and relevant that it's being turned into movies now the the book goes really really deep on things that normally i would say science fiction doesn't capture which is also the flip side of why this book is an underground fit it's not really made for kids like kind of like the way the movie went over our heads for those of us who are old enough to remember it like the book is like that for a lot of people like like we um, Benjamin, we said in our last conversation, I read science fiction voraciously growing up. So how did I miss the best-selling science fiction book of all time? <laughs> because it had no robots and computers, it and it didn't try to simplify things. Because it got into some, it didn't just mention religion as like a, a friendly force to use the force with. Like it really got into jihads and and when the oppressed become the oppressors and sticky thorny issues. And so. Uh, and he did that for environment, and he did that for role of women, and he did that for a whole bunch of things. So um, it's it's definitely a masterpiece. It's very, very dense. I would have, I would definitely encourage anyone today, though, to dive into it because I've heard for so long, oh, it's this dense thing. Oh, it's unfilmable. I think it's had such a cultural impact that it's less dense now because I found it just a, a great read. Uh, and the books that come after are, are even more fast-paced and more sort of like hero-driven. It's almost like, he took a lifetime of trying to be like a published science fiction author and put all of it into like his first attempt. And, uh, and it's, and that's why it's so dense. I think he put like the fact that this movie is broken into two is not an accident. I think the book should have probably been like three or four books. So that's, it was published in two parts as well. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. There's, yeah. Uh, I nice think a Saturday magazine. I think it was a two part. Yeah. Publish. So, so I, I would say that it's, that there's a reason it's the best-selling science fiction book of all time. There's a reason that it's still sort of an underground hit because it's, it's these approachability issues for those that come at it. Like I, the sort of Star Wars for adults, it's sort of the opposite. It's like Star Wars is like doomed for kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that it's not dumbed down at all. And it's very, very dense and rewarding. So, okay. Now that it's, um, the story is very dense. It's very rewarding. And I heard that a lot. So when I went to the movie, uh, I, I was going to go to the actual movies and I punked out. I said, you know what? 
Um, <laughs> my ACO Max subscription is going to run out soon because I'm dropping some of these services. Let me get the last little bit of juice out of it and watch it at home. And I kind of didn't want to be spoiled by the 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 display of it all. Mm. If it was a good story, I wanted to see that come through on a smaller screen. I was like, can the story actually grip me? And does it do it right? Very interesting. Well, so that, was actually, that was actually my decision going in. So I said, okay, let me try this. Um, I started watching it. And when I'm at home, I tend to get distracted by, I'm starting something and it's like, huh, I should have a Fig Newton, you know, and I'll go like start unwrapping <laughs> something. Um, my, very minor distractions, you know, when I'm sitting there. Which is, I, just to interrupt, this is exactly why I didn't tell my wife that it was on HBO until literally we're driving mm. to the theater. And she said, what? Because <laughs> she's parent. It was her first COVID movie. Yeah. She double masked and she was anxious. And I'm like, I'm sorry, honey. I know you would have bailed. And I, I need to see this in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> so, so exactly. So, um, I kind of didn't, didn't want the visual beauty of it to warp my perception of the story and what it was trying to tell. And here's where I want to go to Andy for this, because I started watching it and as I'm, as I'm watching it and kind of being lightly distracted, the beginning of it is slow. I mean, not slow. It's, um, methodical, methodical. There we go. It's kind of methodical. So I'm watching it and like, okay, they're setting up the stage here. They're, focusing on this they're doing that and i'm kind of thinking like other sci-fi movies where it's like okay they're just showing me the grandeur and i can kind of skip past it but that wasn't the case i forgot the exact thing but i kept getting brought back by little bits where i had to actually look at the screen where i'm looking away and I'm like, okay hold on what was that and that keyed in to the visual storytelling that there's quite a bit of so i think at some point i had to stop and actually turn stuff off, you know, sit cross-legged on the couch and just kind of actually watch. Andy, you said something about visual storytelling in our discussions. How did the visual storytelling hit you for this? I mean, you know, he's just, he's very, he's very conscious about frame as a, you know, storytelling or a character device, right? Moments when characters are intentionally dwarfed by by frame to either show their their own smallness or the weight of the responsibility weighing on them um, or, you know, the way he's using atmospherics, he's using whether it's sand blowing or it's it's fog, right? Um, I mean, you know, there's like the scene in no spoilers, but there's like a scene where two characters um, realize there is a lie that has stand, been standing between them for much of their lives. Oh, we're spoiling, and, by the way. Oh, we're on it. We have to. Okay, yeah. We do? Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, well, but you, you, you guys know the scene I'm talking about, and right, and it's like there where you're, you don't just go to shot, counter shot. It's shot, then uh, uh, you know, of like a three-quarter shot where there's mist and the person is kind of slightly blurry and yeah, scared by yeah. the fog, uh -huh. and then the counter shot, and then you go back and you have the counter shot with with the the, the mist again, and they are it's even blurrier. Yeah. Yep. There's there's a whole thing about you know, do I trust you? Do I know you? And that's all in camera, right? That's all just just the frame doing it. Not a single line of dialogue. Is doing this. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, um. And that's just you know very exciting to see. You know, uh, uh, 
both as a director and as, you know, just a visual storyteller of, of, you know, there's thought to this, there's, there's, there's character in, 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 you know, yeah. How did, uh, how did that, uh, make you feel about the characters in that scene? Oh, I heard they've got the, in the theater. I've heard the, the, I heard the sharp intakes in the theater, including. Yeah. Like as, as somebody who's new to dude, I was asking Andy, like between Paul and Jessica, what did that tell you about their, their relationship? It, it's interesting because, um, you know, it's very much, it's very much filmed from Paul's perspective. So we're, we're, we're definitely supposed to see things from the eyes of Paul, but it immediately also makes him ambiguous too, right? He's drifting away from his mother. Yeah. Well, 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 but it's just who you, who you, uh, who you ally with or who you see the movie through. Like that was something of after that point, you start seeing the movie through the mother's eyes more. Yeah. Right. So, and she becomes the more identifiable character as he gets bigger and kind of more bigger for his britches. So we get to the climax of the film and, you know, he's taking charge. Right. The important thing that happened there is it was after the, the Gam Jabbar test and what had happened is very significant. The, the Kwisatz Haderach had awoken and his mother, that's probably the first time his mother began to fear him. So it's a big, big scene. And there's, there's little touches like that through the whole movie that, uh, that are sort of there for people who are deep in the lore can pick up. But, uh, it's, it's cool to see that somebody new to it got a similar sort of feel. So yeah. what's nice about the Gom Jabbar scene too, is that best uh, scene in the movie. Yeah. The, the, what's, what's, it, it is an amazing scene. Um, what's nice about it is that because it's early in the book and it's, it's so prominent, it's something you see a lot. You can, uh, look up on, on YouTube, this interview by, uh, by the director where I think it's variety <laughs> that does these things where it's called the scene breakdown the director goes through what they did. And, and it's like, there's so much packed into that one scene that for me, that, that scene was sort of like a litmus test because first off about spoilers, I'll try to be spoiler free because like I was 80, years <laughs> late to, I was 80, literally 80 plus years late to this book. And I was like, I loved it. That, that was a big part of we're, enjoying it. You know what I mean? So, so I'll, I'll, I'll try. Like we're, we're already spoiling. That's what I'm saying. Anyone that's watched too late. You, we'll, we'll, we'll try our best not to, because I think there is so much discussed without it being actually about the plot because there's the book and then there's the, the influence on culture. There's the movie, but going oh, back to that, hold on, hold on. Here's the thing. We're, 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 we're people watching this are probably, will probably have seen the movie. And may may take this information into a second viewing because I know I had new revelations on my second viewing, which I did do at home. Um, Turn the subtitles on. Yeah, I'm only on it a third time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess guess the request I'll make then is let's just be explicit for our audience. Like, I like those like, hey, we're starting spoilers here kind of thing. So let's let's do that. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll pin the comment so we don't have to say that every time. You're gone here, gone. Hashtag spoilers. I mean, no one's going to be hit at all. Just spoil. So, uh. <laughs> I'll stop being the prude about. But anyway, so that, but that, that scene there, what's, what's so great about it is I realized later that it was sort of like a litmus test for me because there was so much in it that was so weird in the book, but in a book, you know, you, you get it and go through it. But there was so much that I was so nervous about how it's going to translate to screen. Yeah. Work. 
And there, you can so clearly see the influences on the Jedi and the Force and how is it going to be done. And it was so well done. And so this role, the little like making the kid move and, and, and how that was done, the sound effects were insane. And, and, and uh, it, was, it was really, really well done. And that, that breakdown. That like, dolly zoom. With the focus locked? Yeah, and with the yeah. delayed voice yeah. where you see lips move and then the sound is almost like waves that hit later and then it's it's almost like a little mini coma. Like like you it's this it's the way that it was done, I felt like saying, Oh, uh, okay. All right, I'm in safe hands. The rest of it's gonna be pretty good too. So it's it's it was visually like one of the most like I kind of felt like, oh, okay, I already know from the guy's previous work. This guy knows visuals. He's 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 just like a Christopher Nolan for me. Like he he's not random with his movements. The way that um, there's there's this one director that bugs me. He's really famous. Gets a lot of work. I think he even won an Oscar. The the King's Speech guy, the Les Miserables guy, um, uh, well, whatever his name escapes me. But he's like an example of like someone who's very high profile that does good work that wins awards where the camera movements feel fucking random to me and don't serve. Like all this shit that Andy does. Uh, by the way, if you have ever an opportunity to go to a theme park with Andy, it's great because uh, with his, with his, because this stuff, he applies it to the real world. And the first time I saw Rise of the Resistance was with him. And he was pointing out all of the, hey, do you notice the tunnels are getting narrower to make you feel more claustrophobic? And I was like, oh, no, so that's how it's done. Yeah, there are a ton of, of subtleties. And I think, as I said, that's one of the reasons why I had to stop and sit down and watch. Um, like we were talking about the scene with the hand in the box before leading up to that, they were walking through the dark and the little light started fall. It was like the, you know, the house light was following him around. And They're called glow globes. Glow globes. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was following him around. And he kind of just gave me a feeling of like, wow, I'm not necessarily attached to him. Um, maybe I'm like a light following with him. I don't know, but I started rolling all this together in the, in the visual storytelling that it was doing, it threw me off because I felt it was a bit, as I said, it's methodical, it's majestic, but it's muted. It's a little like it's understated and you have to uh, look at things. I don't know. Am I, am I reading that correctly? No, I think, I think you've got it right. In fact, this is a great point for me to put in uh, a couple of notes that I've been waiting for um, to quote my wife because she's completely new to all of it. And, and, uh, into sci-fi is like an amateur, not like super deep into it. And so I asked her for like her impressions on it. And I was going into it basically worried that like, not too worried. Cause I, I thought the trailer, the casting, the director, I thought we were in pretty good hands. I, I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to be as good as it was, but considering the source material, there's always a chance it was going to come out like tenant something where it's like so crammed deep and there's so many players and you don't get it. And you like feel like you need to do homework to understand it. And she came out like, no, 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 I'm still almost all of it. Here's, I'm going to Andy's point about Jessica and, and it being about her relationship, et cetera. That was like her big question was, I don't understand the mom's motivations or her twin pulls. And, and I was like, that's fair. Um, and in fact, this is something I wanted to throw to Donnie. I feel like part of what made the movie work is how much they left out. Like, it's not just cutting the book in half and going, we're only going to cover this much. They still left out a huge number of players and themes and stuff just to build this world. That was my feeling. Did you did you get that too? Uh, yeah, it was tricky watching it with somebody or just watching it knowing everything that's going to happen. Yeah. Because I found myself, like, <laughs> anticipating things, 
and knowing exactly what's going to happen and not really feeling the tension. And one of the scenes where that really sort of stuck with me was when they were, when she was gagged on the ornithopter. Yeah. Paul had to use a voice. I really want to know what that felt like as a person new to do. Yeah. What that was like to watch that. But um, there's going to be a lot of stuff in part two. Sure, sure. Yeah. Jessica has a lot of motivations. Um, the biggest probably is love for Leto. Yeah. Which triggered everything, right? Yeah. He wanted a son. She was not supposed to have a son. She had a son anyway. Yeah. So. I, I would say that's the well, part where I started feeling like, oh, I wonder if they cut too much just to... Because there's already so much that people have to sort of get used to. The forts, for the planets and the trap and the Freeman. Where's the emperor? Yeah. Where's Fade? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, this is another really interesting thing. I mean, kind of going back to I me, mean, bring these two thoughts together, right? Uh, uh, but the um, that scene with, you know, some of the most iconic uh, lines of the book, this film and that film is, you know, I will let fear fears to mind kill it, right? Yeah. Uh, if you remember anything from the, the David Lynch movie, you remember that scene and you remember that line of dialogue. And I thought it was so fascinating that they shifted it. So the dialogue comes from Jessica. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that it's just him and he's just focused on, you know, experiencing the pain of the box. And she's the one to actually kind of deliver that. And we're left to kind of experience her struggle and her pain and her being torn between her early allegiances as mother and, and into the Bene Gesserit. Um, um, I mean, that, that was just such a, another just really cool, brilliant, um, way to, you know, just incorporate character development into the storytelling and not go, now we're doing certain world building and, 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 and character development. And now we'll tell the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the reason I would say that, like, I, I, I'm looking forward to part two. I'm glad it's been so well received. Everyone's sort of initiated into this world, and is that um, it's. I'll, this is how I'd explain it to to people that 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 don't know the books about how weird it is to to not to 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 have that be a little ambiguous. What like my my wife didn't even understand the the, the woman that was testing uh, Paul was from the same order as Jessica. Like it's it's all. It, and if if you think that's not that important, imagine Star Wars where. You don't, the very first movie, you don't really, they don't say the word Jedi. You don't understand. You don't know who Ben is. You don't know who Ben is. Like, you don't, like, so that's what it's like because the, that order of women are like the Jedi of Dune and their abilities are like the Force. It's it's that, and, and it's it's really. They're not as nice as the Jedi, though. <laughs> no, not at all. No, they're, they're, they're fucking evil. But, uh, uh, but. Well, so there, there, there's, there's another thread where someone, um, Someone was jokingly talking about um, uh, uh, the worst interpretation. Oh, well, yeah, like oh, oh yeah. No. Um, uh, they were. It's like, well, what happened when 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 a group of women decide to 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 meddle in in the Paris? Well, yeah, it turns into maybe Jesuit equals space Karens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because I, um, you know, that the speaking of like, uh, them not being like good versions of the Jedi or whatever, or not being good at all, there wasn't, and this is what threw me off with the whole Dune thing initially, where I kind of had to like, wait a minute, I'm sitting here, but I'm not quite sitting right with this. What's, what's going on? 
it was that it doesn't follow the normal uh, Hollywood hero, hero's journey, uh, standard structure. And I think I realized that, as I was saying, in that um, global scene where we started to separate from Paul a little bit. And we started like, okay, he's not necessarily this classic hero type that we've grown to know and understand. Really? Once I, once I, when you, you don't think he's like Neo in the Matrix, where he's like, there's a one and he's chosen and he's a reluctant hero. And he, well, I think the novel does, but it, they've broken it up in the movie quite oh. a bit. Okay. Okay. Because he, I don't know, to me, he, he started to feel as this, like when he first, uh, you know, how dare you use the voice on me? And yeah. he comes yeah. he comes in fully formed with a lot of these powers. There's not a lot of, you know, downside to him. Like he needs to work through things. He's just kind of- Oh, he's been trained since the burst. Yeah. 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 I mean, so a lot of this stuff is just kind of happening. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, for a Hollywood type of movie, this isn't traditional where you sit in a, a role of, I need to learn something. I don't understand. I'm growing bigger. It was just kind of like, no, 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 this is all coming to me. This is what's going to happen. So I think I was able to separate and look at the story from a slightly more um, objective viewpoint as opposed to going along for the standard Hollywood ride. I don't know. That was my view on it. Yeah, Al and I were talking about that a little bit. I I, I do think he, so Heber wrote this before. There was a lot of literature talking about the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. But like that whole story is traditional. It goes back before books were even written. Yeah. And Al and I were talking about part of that is Paul himself sort of becomes aware that he's walking that path and he tries to get off of it. Oh, not even sort of. Like in the book, I would it's if it, you feel the author's voice more than any book yep. I've ever read. Where he's That's, like, Oh my God, I'm on this path and he sees all and he's like, No, he tries to rebel against it. It's like the story picks him up no matter what. He's like, oh yeah. my God, these people believe it already. I can't stop it. Like, you know, because to be honest. But there's definitely like a, a rising action. Mm-hmm. There's like the, the call to arms. There's a refusal. Mm-hmm. There's a, the fight with a dragon. Right. The trial are players. Right. Literally dragons. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big scene in the second half where Paul drinks the water of life, which is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And... There's sandworms all over the place. That's it's very, very dangerous. And then he becomes, you know, triumphant, returns and defeats his enemies. Yeah. Oh, wait, Donnie, I've got one for you. I'm sorry. I got I got one for you that's gonna go over everyone's head. Sorry, this one's just for you. Did you get any vibes from when he stares at the sandworm? Uh did you get any Shiana vibes at all? Any what vibes? Shiana. I'm not sure I don't, I don't know what that word is. Ooh, okay. Uh, it, uh, it's an 80s rock group. No, 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 no. <laughs> this, this might be after book six, might be book seven. Uh, oh, I see, I see. So later books. No, I didn't, yeah. but there's okay. there's a little thing that you can very easily miss. Um, when they, they've they landed and they're saving the harvester. Yeah. And he sort of falls into a trance a little bit and he's kneeling in the sand just in front of the, the harvester. And he just utters under his breath, it's barely audible. I recognize your footsteps, old man. <laughs> and then Gurney comes out of the sand, right? Yeah, yeah. He's not talking to Gurney. Yeah. He's talking to the sandworm. Ooh. Oh, I did miss oh. that. The old man in the sea. The, the, the old man of the, the sand. Old yep. man. Uh, 
Because the worms are like the the the, the whales of yep. you know Dune. Oh yeah, he is he is already having visions, and it it's hinted a little bit. And I really like how Villeneuve played it very subtly. Um, oh well, there's a scene in the tent where he's he's sort of panicking. That, and, one, really, uh, that one really hit me. They're like, yeah. I can't believe you did this to me. You made me a freak. It's not like, hey, I've got powers yeah. now. Right. Like, yeah, what that, that's done to me. That that angle yep. and that side of of the of the of the angle on Paul, the story on Paul, that yeah. must have thrown people. If, um, like expecting a hero's journey type of thing. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, it was kind of like, eh, this is kind of weird, but oh, I get into it. The there was the narrative that I understood from when I was a kid was that this is kind of another, um, even as a kid, I was kind of like, this is kind of a white savior thing yeah. where, you know, you have, <laughs> you have the, you know, Iraqi, uh, and you know, this planet, they need to be saved. So let's have a child. And there was, um, hints of royalty going along and all that. And it's kind of like, okay. I'm not mad at it, but it wasn't terribly interesting. And I think when I started like, oh, this is not what I'm thinking it is, that's when I started to kind of latch onto it a little more. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Andy, uh, what did you think of that final fight? Uh, uh, uh the, you mean just the choreography? Or? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I liked how simple it was. Uh, I mean, I, I would say in terms of fight choreography, uh, it, it is very cool to see um, um, Filipino martial arts like all over this, how right? And it's in the details because the the guy that the the um, the Nigerian, I forget the actor's name right now. He's a jujitsu black belt. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Who, who's who, who's the who's the choreographer? I don't know the choreographer, but the but the but the actor himself, the one playing Janet. Oh, oh. yeah, got it. Belt and he. Um, oh shit! Did I lose you guys? Oh. oh. Oops, oops. I mean, you know, it's, 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 I mean, for, for, for me, I mean, it was, it's like, uh, right. You have this conceit of everyone has these personal shields. It makes projectile weapons, um, kind of useless because anything at speed, which means all combat has to be personal. It has to be this knife fighting. Right. Yeah. And so instead of going for kind of that Euro European, like, you know, dagger and, and saber thing, going for this very Filipino martial arts style close corner kind of, you know, um, you know, where it's all quick cuts and, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's all kind of cuddly. It's screaming. Okay. So wasn't that kind of, uh, deflated a, a bit by like the, the, the weapons that spin the little spinning dart deals that they were shooting at people. Uh, I felt there were a couple elements that kind of didn't make sense to me that they just kind of threw in. Which one was the spinning dart thing? The, any of the projectiles, they hit the shields and slowly yeah. burrowed through. Um, yeah, the yeah, it slows it enough to the point where if you notice, um, Duncan Idaho flicked one off. So it right. slows enough that he can. And what, another thing, by the way, I love the shields because it gives like a realistic reason for why, um, you know, they have to use hand-to-hand -hand combat and sort of bring back the old ways and, 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 and treasure them again and learn them better. Um, what do you think the point of that was? I think the point of that was, um, I think part partly it's a it's a it's a commentary on atomics, as he calls it in the book, um, to show that they're basically those there's it's like nuclear um, um, containment um, it, or deterrence is the only way to in order for society to survive. Because like if you think about when it was written, 
Like there was a lot of like, you know, post-apocalyptic zombie movies, space invaders. Like it was hard to imagine life after like a nuclear winter and scorched earth, right? In the book, it makes very, very clear. Nope, you can't have nuclear weapons because of these shield things, because um, any kind of laser hits it, it's basically the same as an atomic. Um, all these great houses all have like essentially a peace treaty not to use uh, nuclear weapons um, for a reason, because then you wouldn't have any of the trade. And it did see when like, he's what there's so many subtle things about the book. Oh, sorry. There's so many subtle things about the book. And one of the things that's so subtle is that it took one of the tropes. Uh, like AI, like sentience and becoming aware and all that and buried it in the past, like thousands of years before the action. Um, it's something that's, you know, that's, that's, it, 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 it sort of avoids a lot of the, the tropes. Okay. Go ahead, Donnie. If that makes sense. Uh, I'm just geeking out on stuff like the scene where Duncan's fleeing in the ornithopter and the, um, yeah. Starter car decided to use a laser gun on him. That was extremely dangerous and illegal if they had hit him and it had gone off and blown up the uh yeah. the pact among the worlds would have triggered annihilation of mm. uh probably of that entire house that entire line yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's so, how serious the the atomic agreement is in the, the setting yeah okay um I mean, I'll say at least this too. The, the other thing is, is that just, just the pure mechanics of I shoot you from 50 yards away with a gun and then I move on versus I have to look you in the eye and stab you. Yeah. Right. Like that already, you know, whether it's how you envision it in a novel or how you see it dynamic, dynamically on screen, it makes death personal. Right. And particularly, you know, that sort of ties back to the Butlerian Jihad where they got rid of thinking machines too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I actually recently learned about that whole idea of, yeah, that I, I, that's something that's not, that I was not aware about um, that um, AI is outlawed in this universe. Okay. That was, yeah. I picked that up a couple days ago, but um, which makes sense. But, but also, yeah, I mean, just in, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of, of, uh, oh shoot! What was I going to say? I lost my thought. Damn it! <laughs> the, the personal nature of the combat. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you have to look them in the eye. Death is up close. Oh yes. So that the we the the birth of Paul as Madib, we basically see at the end of this movie the first time he takes a life. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a personal life. Here's the person I think is supposed to be my mentor, who I'm going to learn things about the desert from. And this is the lesson. The lesson is to kill this man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. To take. I think there were that a lot of things like that that were laying the ground. Like either you knew the books thoroughly and you were excited by these little Easter eggs, or you didn't. And then later you'll see it's laid the groundwork for it. Like my my wife asked her, um, didn't really even understand that he was seeing the future because it was so mm -hmm. convoluted and so done in possible futures exactly yeah but she, he had this whole conversation with that guy about the flow of processes and what what does that mean so it's kind of good in that it's question marks um that that hopefully will will pay off later for a lot of people and for the rest of us we get to geek out now because i like that they're easter eggs instead of like i i i i came out of the movie instead of elated that it was so great which i was i felt more over sense sense overwhelming sense of relief like Oh, <laughs> they did it right. Yeah. I, 
you know, it felt like a shot by shot remake of 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 the '84 Dune, and I was like, I'm fine with that. Just could clear out all the cheesy fucking uh, narrations and the and the pondering, uh, pondering like the uh, time and everything. You know, I I'm not about the movie, but that that's specific stand. It's just it's it's included in conversations. Yeah, but like all of that is it's still narration. It's still it yeah. just it yeah. just the 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 simple choice of prefacing these flashbacks you know in a conversation with someone and suddenly it feels like a character moment as much as it is exposition yeah yeah it definitely felt like there was um like i think part of like going back to the very first question benji asked is why this this book in this whole world is to the test of time is one of the same things that makes it so hard to be approachable it doesn't have robots and computers etc well, the flip side is that if you do put in that investment, you get these themes that are much more like they stand the test of time. They go to deeper human issues. And and that's how I felt about the movie, the 84 movie. It felt like when I went back, it had a lot of 80s in it. And I'm like, it doesn't have to have all this shit. Like, like you know, I like that shit, man. I went back. I check this out. I really mentioned it. If you go back, I like the 84 better. Yeah. If you <laughs> go back and like, for example, watch Superman 2, you know, or something where like Lois is falling in love and she literally sings him a song and he touches her fingertip and makes her fly. I'm like, we forget that shit because it's fucking corny 80s shit. That's what it is. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I, I, I dramatically blocked it out. It's weird. <laughs> so I kind of felt like it was like the 84 version. Actually, the bones of it, a lot of it were still in this movie and it's been stylistically updated. Yeah, I think um, as far as like the political intrigue and the the battling back and forth, I think when I went back and watched the 84 version, I actually felt that a little more in that one. There's a little more yep. overt with like, yeah. you know, the emperors there. Yeah, the emperor. The different uh, things. Um, the, uh, the space guild guys are floating in. They're like, hey, we're trying to do this deal and what's going on? And Oh, did you see them in this one? They're in the very beginning. The guys with the... Uh, the orange masks. No, yeah, it was them. Okay, okay. Yeah. Those are the guild guild representatives. I just went back and, and rewatched the the David Lynch shit. I've been wanting to actually. But I'll finish that like, in half. I feel like that is so I feel like watching this makes me understand like iconic things and I remember it. I'm okay, right? You know, <laughs> I will say like I do remember the '84 version as a kid the way Andy described it. Like it was so different. It was completely over my head. I was like eight at the time. But there were visuals and things that you'd never seen anywhere elsewhere. And it just kind of, when I was reading the book, I got some of those vibes too. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, the, the book, the, the eight, we should say for those that don't know, the 84 uh, movie did essentially the entire book. And it tried to cram in all of the political intrigue and machinations. And that's what we call it, you sort of Star Wars for adults. But when you get into the books, there's this whole other part, which is like Game of Thrones in space. The different houses yep. and alliances and economies and external enemies binding them together or it should, but some don't anyway and all of that stuff. And so you can see why they greenlit series in addition to making these two movies. Right. And behind it all is the Bene Gesserit, which is going to be the series. Exactly. Exactly. So, which means we should talk about the women of this world. So with the... Um, before, we, before we jump into the uh, women... now. Yeah, screw it. Let's go ahead and do it right now since we're there. Uh, <laughs> and no, I'm like bouncing around my notes here and I'm just trying to. All right. No, uh, I won't forget this part. We can we go on to whatever you had next. 
No, so the 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 women in this in the eighty four version, it starts out with, um, you know, a lady I forgot her name, um, but she, the Reverend Mother, uh, is, was that it? I'm not sure who it was in the movie. Uh, is, the, is it? The, did she have hair or not? She had hair. It wasn't veiled. Uh, they gave there's Lady Jessica. They gave her a name, and somebody was explaining it. Um, oh, you mean but, Princess Irulan? Oh, oh yeah, there yeah, the princess. Yeah, yeah, the narrator. So yeah, she 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 narrates the beginning and says the, that's right. Sets the tone for it. So in that movie, I got a, a bit of a sense of um, the niceness that they're trying to put forth, and I didn't see as much of the underlying um, machinations that were going on. And I don't know what this this uh, world was trying to put forth with. Uh, gender but they're obviously a very strong group of women um in particular with this one group and i don't know if they're ever really if that's ever really explored in any other facet of the story well right, right there you mean in other outside of this film like in other media like outside of the bene Gesserit? oh outside of the bene Gesserit, um yeah women play a huge role and and to the point where so so i'll just step back and say um that's one of the 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 um uh, minor controversies that flared up on the way towards this movie being released is that um, some of the actors mentioned how the, the gender roles had been updated a little bit and that they were a little bit traditional in the books. And uh, and some people got angry and said, you're being revisionist. Is it sexist or not, et cetera? Well, so well, I'll say when I watched it that they really, they didn't change that much. They did do a gender swap on one of the, the main characters, but in a way that that worked for me. Uh, because it shows the sort of like warrior spirit of like everyone in this world. Um, but essentially the book is like a love letter to the author's wife. The author and him are, um, and his wife were both writers and they both took turns supporting each other financially, like to live their dreams and both become writers. Um, and the main character, Lady Jessica is modeled on Frank Herbert's wife. And um, it, as the books go on, women in general but that that race of women become more and more important to the point where they basically rule the galaxy and all is not well um it doesn't mean like oh when women rule the world everything's better but the the characteristics of grace and uh, emotional truth seeking and groundedness and strength and and all this other stuff um were was modeled really heavily on frank herbert's wife in the last 10 years of his life he was just taking care of her as she died from cancer and that's that's why uh, it took so much out of him, and he died like two years after she died. And um, and that's why the last book wasn't, like, written. He, he took forever to basically write the, the last book that he did write and didn't get to the ending. Um, by the way, I just realized the reference I was making to Donnie about Shiana, those are in the son's books. Um, Ten years after the author died, um, he went back to sort of conclude that uh, thing, saying he's finally ready. He built up his own sci-fi writing chops by writing prequels and the the sisterhood stuff that's going to come to hbo he's an executive producer on this movie by the way and uh and so 10 years after he said i'm finally gonna do it went to the publishers and they dug through and they found two hidden uh safe deposit boxes with all of his father's notes about how it's supposed to end and so he wrote two more books to to wrap up this essentially that this is like the skywalker saga the main family and um and i just realized shan is a character in that i'm glad i didn't give away any spoilers so uh, but that, but that, that shot of Paul standing in front of the sandworm, where the sandworm's framed in a way where it almost looks like an eye, 
like it's looking at him and they're contemplating each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's no way that's not an Easter egg for the, the some of the later books and other cool stuff that comes later. Um, but yeah, so women women do have a strange role in this in that they are powerful. However, when I when like I said, my wife was confused about who is Jessica, what's her motivation with their son, who the hell was that old lady? What? And I tried to explain what the Bene Gesserit is. Um, she said. She was shocked. She was like, oh, I didn't get any of that from the movie. That sounds like some Handmaid's Tale type twisted shit. <laughs> mm. And, you know, and that's that's where they don't use the word concubine even once. Um, my wife started picking up on some weirdness when he said, I should have married you. She's like, that's not his wife? Like, she was confused by that whole angle. And they and they did sort of smooth some of those things over to get into the movie because um, that I could see how it would be problematic. She wasn't, she wasn't walking by his side when they came off the ship uh, and she's walking behind him but that's subtle enough that it's it's not as explicit it could be missed it's a book where like in the book um another version of the force that the the nuns use is sex like they like they enslave men by like basically using the karma sutra on them and to like warp their minds and shit it's like you know <laughs> like you can see how that's like uh uh you know oh you're it gets weird. It, it gets weird, <laughs> but like I, I loved it all. Interesting, weird. Like the setting has some weird, interesting stuff, and I feel this movie sort of captured some of that sort of skin crawling weirdness yeah. in in some of the scenes. Like the voice, I thought was pretty disturbing. Yeah. How it just sort of instantly put Paul into that narcoleptic coma. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, "Whoa, what's going on?" Like, I, I, and and you think about like, you learn what the the Bene Gesserit are. They have unlocked the biological memory of all their ancestors, and they sort of manifest this hyper hypnosis with that the knowledge of all those experts that they've they're able to communicate within themselves. And then they use it on people, you know, with the voice and with the sex. And there's a lot of little creepy things like, like the worm was creepy as hell, I thought. Like terrifying. Yeah. The way it liquefied the sand. Yeah. And those are practical effects. Oh, okay. And, uh, I could see how yeah. they might have used sound speakers below the sand to make it dance in certain patterns and stuff. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, it was all those little creepy things are, I thought were really a, a great addition. Yeah, I think they really, uh, oh, you know what that, or? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So no, I think a lot of those creepy additions, the, you know, method, uh, you know, the methodology behind putting all that together is where I think this really shines. And it's funny, as I said, I saw it on the, I, I saw it small twice. So I watched it, then I watched the 84 version, then I watched it again, and now I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> Well, gee, I should go watch it in the theater now to catch even more. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Andy, you spoke uh, in our little pre-discussion about hitting on notes of philosophy. What did you get from the movie that was talking to you about some of the philosophical elements? Um, gosh, what was, what was I having on? <laughs> oh, it's kind of like, said philosophy. The big obvious politics, you know. The big obvious. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the, uh, kind of the power of, 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 of demagoguery, um, and, you know, the, uh, 
Well, actually, I mean, I, I really found the the the, the post that you you posted uh, internally to to the rest of us really fascinating, right? Of the the, the Herbert quote uh, about the danger of heroes, or specifically the danger of superheroes, that anyone who is um 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 you know has the has the power of a superhero, even if they have good intent, the systems they create, therefore create the potential for you know they're still human beings with flaws and the impact of their their flaws or their mistakes are now on a gigantic scale yeah i um i have the actual quote here i'll go ahead and throw it down um not the whole thing uh they were asked he was asked about how it evolved how the story came through and in explaining he, he says this grows from my theory that superheroes are disastrous for humankind even if we find a real hero, whoever or whatever that may be, eventually fallible mortals take over the power structure that always comes into being around such a leader. And speaking of a story from a hero point of view, that really stuck with me as like bringing in the ideas of religion and, you know, what's the power there, the power to control people, uh, the power to decide where resources go. Um, getting behind a, a certain figure, what the, the, whether it's a Messiah figure, whether you're building the Messiah, um, as the, you know, Bene Gesserit trying to do, or whether you're waiting on a Messiah, you know, as the, as the people from the Sand are doing. Slipped my mind what their name Freeman. is. Um, Freeman. Of course. Yeah. Um, so there's all this uh, politics, religion kind of thing going together. And that, that's, that's exactly what I was trying to get at when I was saying the philosophy and the stuff you were talking about. It seemed like you were hinting at that too, that that's what struck you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, well, in terms of, yeah, the opportunity to create a safe space where you create a distant space where you can talk about kind of those larger ideas, um, um, which I think this absolutely does. Right. Um, and, um, from what I understand of where the story goes after here, right. Oh, I mean, I do think that there is an intentional choice in terms of after the, uh, after the, the fears, after the, um, the box scene, right. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah, I mean, I do feel like there's an intentional choice to turn the story from being from Paul's perspective to watching Paul from Jessica's perspective, because now he, you know, he is stripped of everything. Um, his father is gone and he is placed in place with the task the choice to kind of wield this power that has been laid before him. Right. Um, um, all these various powers and you know, what he does with this is, you know, what the next movie will be. Yeah. This movie was very much, it seems like about their relationship, a mother son relationship. And what is it, what is it, mean to become your own person and, and your parents plans for you and et cetera. And, and how that comes into conflict and defining your own self. I mean, at the very end, it comes down to it. He makes a choice that uh, his mother disagrees with. He goes off to the Freeman and says, um, this is how, what, what, what I believe my dad would have wanted, um, you know, to create the desert power and his, and his mother did it. So that's, that's, that's the first, like, like, um, beyond emotional, but like logistical crack in their, in their relationship or split, I should say, uh, uh, his growth into choosing his own actions. 
Well, I mean, talk about talk about thinly veiled um, um, allegory too, right? <laughs> like, you know, let alone Arrakis to Iraq or whatever, but like freaking that where he's going to build his army of completely devout, like, you know, uh, 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 soldiers are the Fremen. Yeah. The Freemen. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, who are questionable whether how free they are if they could buy into this idea of a mess- of a messiah figure i'm gonna you know like that's the action i'm gonna i'm gonna leave you mom i'm gonna go go hang out with my new friend and and smoke drugs and yeah that's yeah, gonna be great <laughs> hey, we're all gonna be men and we're gonna be free and we're gonna follow ourselves the free men and we do for so <laughs> it's not and quite, that. it's not quite as bad as like unobtainium but like uh, or in the last in the last Dune movie, uh, last uh, Bond movie, there's there's a guy uh, that Bond villain is basically named Lucifer Satan. I, I think it's not. I think it's actually like Lucius Satan or something. But it's like, oh, okay, all right. it's a little, it's a little on the nose. But <laughs> like instead of spice, if they called it schmoil or something, you know that. <laughs> but uh, why is it called spice? Because uh, it's it's used in food and it's ingested. And it's always described as basically cinnamony. It's like it's like yeah. super cinnamon. Um, and if you think yeah. about it, like I don't know, like I, so I'm Turkish, but like I was raised here, and so like a lot of spicy home cooked foods had a lot of weird red shit in, it, like paprika, like everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and there are. It felt very Middle Eastern. Yeah. There are wars fought over uh, the spice trade. You know, also, yeah, yeah. People forget like some of the stuff, like basic commodities that we have. Like the re- uh, the reason our, our the word for salary is what it is is it comes from salt. Like you were the phrase, the man is worth his weight. Like you would be paid in salt. Like salt, and and there's a reason because we yeah. it, we have it so much in our modern society. We try to cut down off our blood pressure, but um, if you, if you go back enough centuries, salt is is critical. There's a reason why tribes all around the world drink blood like they like saline is something that's very difficult to find in nature that like you, you can't run on and so this it does have this sort of elemental mining operation type feel it, to, to it with spice it was so important it picked up mythological properties right yeah like the pillar of salt yeah uh, it became it was used to purify things so it, it became a alchemical ingredient yeah and um, it's interesting how those myths developed over time, which sort of ties back to what I was going to try to bring up a second ago. The, I'll put it in quotes, the, the religions that the, the Fremen believe it are not their own. They weren't organically arrived upon by those people. It was hinted at a little bit, but they were literally planted, uh, the ideas of those myths they were planted there by the Bene Gesserit yeah. hundreds and hundreds of years ago, specifically in the case that a sister um, found herself stuck there. She could manipulate the people to ensure her survival and her whatever mission she had would be successful. Now that it goes very, very deep. The they they have the channel to it in the movie. They have a little yeah they do yeah where, where the sun the, goes like you just tell them what to believe and whatever. Yep. Yeah. But the the chanting that the the fremen were doing at the palace that's all Bene Gesserit planted. The Lisad Al Gib I can't I think I said that right. Bene Gesserit planted the um, everything that they're about to explore 
in the second movie was planted by the Bene Gesserit. Now, Paul finds himself in this situation where he, he's either going to turn away or not. And if, if he turns away, these, these wheels have already begun rolling. Yeah. And he has to decide, like, the entire next movie is going to be him making decisions and struggling with those decisions and hallucinating constantly about those decisions. Um, but the thing I find interesting is his feelings for these people are real and legitimate. And he grows very close to Stilgar and Chani and has family with them because they adopted him. And he became one of them literally through taking the life of Jamis. Yeah. Like once he's done that, there's nothing else. Like there's no initiation or anything. He is a Fremen now. Yeah. And I think they say that in the movie. So it's, it's a weird like battle between this sort of evil manipulative, um, charismatic hero that we're being warned about. But at the same time, he's, you know, there's that powerful story of he's avenging his father's death. He's righting the wrongs of the evil Harkonnen. Um, he's destroying this artificial scarcity economy by taking control of it, seizing it for himself. And you're like, yeah, that sounds great. But then like you see what happens after and it's not good at all. It's, it's a really compelling and interesting story as you watch him struggle with decisions I don't think anybody would want to struggle with. It's I, the, I think it's that's the, like, it's, a, it's an artificial scarcity of spice. Yeah. Well, it just, it's all over the sand. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a danger in collecting it, but the emperor controls the flow and the Harkonnens control it. They've been harvesting it like mad and have a huge surplus of it. And they've, they've controlled the, the spice market, you know, just like the West India company. I think that's the name. Mm -hmm. East, East India company controlled the, or even the way the flow of trades diamond companies do now. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's a big part of the book. But so that, and I don't think that there's a scarcity of oil. I think that the oil companies probably control the flow of that. Yeah. Yeah. To uh, the, manipulate the price. God, what's it called? The OPEC. Yeah. Like the OPEC consortiums. Yeah. There's actual consortium in, in, in the books as well too. Um, channel. Yep. Show and the land strat. And that's the yeah. that's the equivalent of OPEC and the oil nations bond together. Oh. Um, but there's a there's a very um like the the Star Wars for adult aspect is that like that's one big area of religion is different. Like in Star Wars, you're asked to drop your rational beliefs and to just believe in this sort of higher power and then good abilities will happen to you. In in the books, it is very, very hard nosed. Like what what Donnie says is very deliberate. They plant religions around different cultures around the world specifically for control. And they're very open about it. The Bene Gesserit, um, you know, they, their uh, main drive is called Missionaria Protectiva. It's the mission to protect the humanity via controlling for their benefit, right? And that's a big, you know, controlling to the people. For their greater good. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's, that's something that's, 
it's 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 something that you could see it being written in the 60, 50s and 60s and developed further uh, and being very much for adults, right? Not for kids. Like, hey, religion is just another social construct, kids, et cetera. But, you know, that, that I think that also gets to, I think people were able to swallow that. But I think the reason the books that come after, um, I always thought I'm doing just one book. It blew my mind when I found out that it was like six by the dad and a whole bunch of others is because like, here's here's a tip, by the way. If you guys get into reading the books, Ignore the introductions until after you've read them because the sun is goes nuts about spoilers. Uh, but at, if, if they're actually really cool stuff to read after you've read each book, because he gets into the sort of genesis of how that book was written and why. And that's where I got the sort of uh, I, I got um, his take on how the dad had always intended for Paul not to just question the hero's journey, but then in the later books to actively subvert it into into not just. You know, in, in the Dune uh, book, it goes deeper on these sort of possible futures he sees of things that could go wrong or right or whatever. And then in later books, it's like, no, 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 it goes fucking wrong and sideways. And and then I don't think people like having their heroes turn into villains or question their own movements that they've spawned and that kind of thing. And so it gets even deeper as the books go along as well. So another thing that, that stuck out to me is when um, when Paul's father was talking about Hey, here on our home planet, we have air power and water power. You know, now we can get into desert power. Um, I didn't know that air and water were useful like spice was. I don't know what he was getting at or why that stuck oh, out. No, it was a military advantage. Yeah, mil- yeah, I, I, I read that as the okay. same thing. Like, you know, we have we have a navy, we have an air force. Yeah, air now we have a des- now we have a desert force. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Which actually was a big thing in World War II as well, too. Right. Like North Africa was like one of the giant stages for uh, and turning points uh, or go further back. Ottoman Empire and Byzantine Empire and all those flips like the desert has been. So here's one of the things about religion where um, that I, I, I just don't think it'll come across in movies. And that's fine. This is totally extra. But one of the interesting things about the appendices that he wrote, which are almost like books by themselves, like these things at the back of the first book, is that he had this insight that three of the major religions of our world were created in deserts. And that maybe there was something about harsh, they, these things were not created despite the harsh environments, but you almost needed harsh environments to create the type of like uh, type of people that would be superior warriors and religious fanatics and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not an accident. Well, wait, that, that, what, what religions was he referring to as, as being Judaism, the Abrahamic and all the Abrahamic monotheistic religions. Uh, so if those three essentially all have like deep roots in deserts and, you know, the 40 days loss of desert or the trials by fire in the desert and those kinds of things that what if the Fremen were basically a uh, a superior, uh, a superior type of people, both as warriors and as, and as like, um, strong belief systems and abilities survived it because of the desert, not despite it. Um, and I mean, I mean, I would, I would actually, you know, kind of build off of that idea in terms of, of those, if we're talking about those three specific religions, um, and how those religions were used basically as, as, as catalyst for conquering in ways over other religions, right? That's that's really why those religions are the most prevalent is because they were used as tools for 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 like mobilizing armies. Oh yeah. 
If you think of like, okay, Christianity's origins at its time, right? The Roman Empire, where the Roman Empire was trying to basically stamp out these like insurgents, right? And then it became this sort of, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing where the small movement then became part of the Roman Empire and and you had a, a Christian emperor and et cetera. There's equivalence in, in, in the book as well too, commentary of like Paul's movement with the freemen become like um, this this stubborn group of, of, of people that cannot be stamped out that eventually grow and grow. And then, you know, there's that's where the, the commentary about the, you know, oppressed becoming the oppressors. Are they any better? Or are they even 10 times worse, et cetera? Like all that sort of like, you know, um, Palestinian-Israel conflict writ large kind of type stuff happens as well too. Um, so there's, there's little hints of it here, but it, here it's much more, but in the book, oh, I mean, in the recent movie, it's much more about watching these two giant empires clash and indigenous people are sort of caught in the middle. One, one thing that I think, um, is sort of touched a little bit in the book, in the movie, but sort of talked about more in the books is the perception of the, the, the Fremen as sort of primitive savage savages when the truth is they're not and they have a rich culture of their own which is you know unfortunately it's manipulated quite a bit by the Ben Gesserit in the past but they do have their own culture where like water is the commodity of highest value yeah and the spitting that's a, a good example like they have this rich culture they have an enormously successful and advanced industrial base. You just don't see it. Like they manufacture steel suits, which is a cutting edge technology, right? They make the, the compass, the paracompass thing that Paul uses. They made that really cool sand, uh, sand sculpture tool that I, that used sonic stuff. And the Arconans are sort of guilty of this in the movie. They, they think that there's only like 50,000. And the Baron says, go crush them. It's my planet. It's my dude. They're of no consequence. I'm completely dismissing them because my perception of them is they're worthless savages. And we learn with Paul in the next book that they're anything but, right? There's this huge, enormous, rich society. And I think that's sort of another interesting takeaway that is, uh, that, you know, a lot of a lot of people can be guilty of uh, a perception of the other group as savage and primitive and not worthy. And it's another thing that Herbert's really good at in this book is, is highlighting that, that prone, that nature that we're all prone to. And it stands large in this book and movie. That that was a theme that I I was not ready for and really just found really striking of when they're when they're kind of going through the tunnels, um, um with the professor right, and with Leanne that with that um, uh yeah that that um you know all of this was created for terraforming the desert and the and ultimately they decided to not um and ultimately keep things primitive, right. Uh, 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 in, to better exploit, you know, the, the, the farming of spice, the collections. Well, a little bit of spoilers, but they don't really talk about it in the movie. Liet actually wants to make Arrakis better for the Fremen. Part of that is introducing viable fauna 
because their life is miserable and hard. Yeah. It's, they're literally scraping by. That, I mean, they do have that's the aspect a society. Glorified too much. Like the way the app. Yeah. The Aborigines are, are, are described in Australia as like masters of the desert. That No, they, they were pushed out from their yep. productive regions of coastal areas. And that's why they're, they're in the bushes, they call it there. The Fremen are similarly sort of banished into these unproductive areas, hanging on by their nails. Yeah, and that character is trying to reverse that, right? But that poses a threat, right? Yeah. Reducing the flow of spice is going to really anger the emperor. Plus, like, Spice is legitimately improving the lives of everybody in the universe. They don't talk about it, but it, it improves health. It extends life. And uh, it, it probably has elevated the, the quality of life for everybody. So it's another weird trade-off that, I don't know, it's interesting to think about, and I wouldn't want to decide the outcome. I don't remember. I don't remember if if I got this factoid from you, Al, or from something I saw on YouTube or something like that. But 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 talking about um, America's obsession with coffee and then they oh that's me. So what the, yeah, that was, was that, any, yeah if, yeah okay yeah yeah. And, and I th- well, I, I mean I find that really just fascinating too, right? In how that's the correlation, right? Uh, uh, for for the idea of spice as a stimulant and driver of 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 capitalism and and, and hooking in the economy yeah the author uh, the author behind that if for those that are interested more i highly recommend it is michael pollan um he's he's written a lot of stuff that that have become really big um uh, like the 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 eat plants not too much guy that kind of thing and he's and his recent thing he makes a really strong case for how coffee basically built the industrial revolution um, and it's like a focusing drug and, you know, that for century, it, it's relatively new in terms of the substances that we consume in mass. Like it's only a few centuries old. Um, it's something we take for granted, but it's like the most widely consumed psychoactive substance on the planet. Like 90% of us take in caffeine of some form or another. Um, and it's a massive improvement over what we drank for thousands of years before that beer, um, wine, that kind of, stuff. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a. You know, and so uh, I loved how they were, they had the coffee setting that they were about to have a coffee serving yeah. in the movie right there. That was so cool. Oh, yeah. Where they were like, there's a dude fan. And the, they're all spitting into it to oh, add their, their water. And they had, it was gross, <laughs> but it was cool. It was really cool. Uh, it, but getting back to some of the ecological points you mentioned, um, there are little call outs to ecology might be a bridge too far for uh, a two hour movie. I get it. But it is such an important part of the book that. Like, for example, the mouse there, that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, it'll be even more important later. There's a reason why it's called Maudit. Like, they do a close-up of the ears where it's a wind trap and it captures moisture and comes down to its face. Like, those types of animals were all introduced over decades by, by that scientist, the ecologist, and her father. Like, they, they're, terif- they're not terraforming in a, a blade runner, give it two years with the colonists in a giant machine kind of way. They're doing it by like planting shit over decades. <laughs> yeah. And the original they're they're pursuing sustainability too. Yeah. 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 So yeah. the original book actually um didn't become popular overnight. And where it first started so becoming this underground cult hit was in the whole Earth catalog and this hippie movement. Right. Like right, hey, right. here's this whole sci-fi movement about the environment, man, and what happens when it's destroyed and like how indigenous people know better and their ancient rituals need to be brought back, man. And like, 
It was true. All that's true. And it's, and more, there's a lot yeah. more. But Herbert was definitely an um, environmentalist. Uh, he talked about what, I don't know if he was pro-environment necessarily, but he talked a lot about it. So it was definitely uh, injected into the stories of Dune. And uh, yeah, that's apparent um, from the books and from the movie a, a little bit. Yeah. But um, one thing that I was wondering about, and um, Flo Corny asked, what do you say to the white savior trope? We talked about this a little bit before, but I think with our discussion as we've been building on this, you know, it's the hero thing. And there's this bit of there is no one that's really good. We're just describing a situation and a story. And it's a very artistic piece like that. Um, so I don't know if you guys thought there was a good point of view or is this just a tale about, you know, how... I mean, I think if you I think if you only look at this part one, uh-huh. right, um, um, then yeah, it's going to feel very familiar, right? But kind of some of the things that you're talking about Benjamin and, and how, how, and then also Al, uh, or the things you guys are talking about in terms of how Herbert kind of sought out to break the hero's journey uh, structure, mm-hmm. right? Like it will not, over the course of the whole story, it will not fit that hero mold. Uh, uh, and he does not save the Fremen people at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it will, and the, it will ultimately break the, 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 the good. white savior yeah. of itself. Right. But yeah. Andy, Andy, they, they don't need to be saved. Andy, wasn't you a couple weeks right? ago that made the joke where you said you saw the trailer and you're like, is this just dances with wolves in space? <laughs> I mean, he does go native and he does sort of like switch sides and he does come back to sort of fight and there's a fight scene. Yeah. There's a fight. Well, check this out. I mean, I did, I did, I did, I did use that analogy to talk about Avatar. Oh, David's Panthera. Yeah, okay. Um, I thought Avatar was fangoli in space. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. Everything's in space. Um, interesting that they didn't use a lot of in space action. They just jumped to planets, uh, kept it pretty terrestrial, so. Yeah. Um, so I, we can talk about that real briefly. So there's nothing interesting really happening in space in the setting. And space is very, very big and distances are enormous. And only the, the guild navigators, which we don't see, mm-hmm. can fly through space because there's no computers. Somebody high on the spice needs to steer the ship. Yeah. And that's the guild navigators. And they, they, they like aerosol the stuff and they live in these tanks and that's all they breathe. So they're constantly under this trance. So there's not a whole lot going on in space. There's sort of orbital bombardments are always a threat. But other than that, everything important is on the ground with people. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's a big part of keeping it grounded in this sort of like I, like I, not to open a can of worms, but like that's that's what I liked about the recent Star Wars trilogies is that it felt like um, going back to the seventies in that aesthetic, in that you know proper locations. Even when it's not, it feels that way. Um, that's been sort of like a style of recent CGI, and it's um, as opposed to sort of the prequely. Oh, this whole movie was in the green room. That's my feeling about Avatar. Okay, great. Uh, 
<laughs> we should talk about all the practical sets. There were no green screens. Oh my God. They bumped me. Maybe that's enough. Before, right. before, oh. before we jump on that, um, <laughs> welcome back, Andy. And yes, Adam, <laughs> I, I caught your pun. And the only reason I said, you know, can of worms, the only reason I stayed with it for that long was because you used oh, animal worms. And shame on you. Like, mm, it's a good little pun there, can of worms. Um, yeah. The, the idea that, um, you know, so much of this movie was intentional. Uh, I really thought that like, okay, so, you know, they killed off, um, a lot of the, a lot of the actors of color were killed off, like right off the bat. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. okay, why would you do that in this day and age? And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. If you're not a campy horror movie, why right. do that? And then uh, I'm watching it again and I'm like, oh, wait could be in the spirit of dune and this whole thing is still pretty interesting to me i don't know did any of you key on that at all yeah yeah unfortunately <laughs> I, it's i was worried about how it would be received especially the fight with janice yeah that that worked, right. especially for me especially because um fuck he's a good actor like there's a lot of roles where you're like oh why isn't he in Javier bardem's role like he's like this like his tone of voice, I, 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 I should admit, by the way, that actor, even though it's escaping my name, he recently came on my radar in that Guy Ritchie movie with the bank heist and stuff. He's got this smooth under your skin voice and presence. Like he could have been just as good as Stilgar as Bardem. So that, that, yeah, that aspect does bother me because then it, it goes, it, it, it takes me out of the movie. I'm like, okay, great. Now you're window dressing where you show that the frontmen are diverse and then someone speaks up and it's, and it's always either white or Hispanic, and that that throws me off. I've been, but I've been worrying about that ever since they cast the lead, who, as much as I liked, um, you know, he's he's like his name might as well might be like Pretty White Boy One Hundred One or whatever. Yeah. Like you know, it's it, it, that that is absolutely a, a problematic part of it. So. He's my favorite young actor after that Kamjabar scene. So yeah, no, yeah, no, uh, it was it was yeah. it was interesting to me uh, that. Um, I don't know, as I said, after I watched it a couple of times, I was like, wait a minute. Could it might have been maybe not purely intentional, but they, it was it happened and they kind of left it in because it didn't upset the spirit of the books. I don't know. Um, as Brian says, a whole room of Harkonnens were killed as well. Yeah. Um, and all the Sardaukar looked like they were all white to me. Yeah. The, um, so... It, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's, it's a weird. That's a weird we're keyed into it because of you know, today's society, you know. So yeah, this is something yeah. you'd have to be like thinking about. And when I watched the 1984 movie, what was interesting is, <laughs> yeah, there were there were every cast was pretty diverse. So the Freemen had a lot of you know very fair skinned people. You had dark skinned people in the other classes of uh, or the other guilds. So it was weird seeing this back and back and forth um i'm not sure exactly what was going on in the writer's room and what they thought about but points um i don't know yeah that, that so point stood out to me too and the, with the last fight in particular like like i said he's been on my radar for a while i'm like why is that guy still guard he'd make a great still guard but anyway yeah <laughs> so our mlo has has answered a lot of these types of questions specifically the the uh, the white savior trope so i think if people are really interested in that it's available on the internet oh which one is that too um he's specifically answered this um is due to white savior trope and he's talked about it 
And it's tricky because you can't really answer that without spoiling the rest of the story. Mm. But I, I feel, I don't know, it's up to everybody to decide, but I feel like he answered it fairly reasonably. Yeah, and I, I do think that so. even in even in the given scope of the movie that was put out there, upon further watching, I think that that is an oversimplification. And, at you know, when people say the white savior trope, they're asking, you know, are we kind of glorifying this white savior coming in and just doing whatever? And to that, I'd have to say, no, this doesn't do that. It still may receive some critique or whatever, but it's not as simple as just saying, this guy comes. I mean, I mean, and particularly when it ultimately it becomes uh, a, a deconstruction of the workings of imperialism. Yeah. As a construct entirely. Right. Right. And you would want to say that in such a deconstruction or, or at least reference it at least. So, yeah, I, I would say it does have a, a white savior problem, um, but that it's on purpose. It, like the Bene Gesserit set it, it up. Yeah, I, 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 I see. But like, it's sort of like multiple things are true. Like it is part of a larger context. It is made to be subverted later. You know, in this first movie, it definitely isn't. Um, it's both made to be subverted both by the author, but also literally in universe by the Bene Gesserit tapping into tropes. But if I just take all that out of it, um, you know, it's almost like, um, like there's so much weird new shit in this movie that like they had to, you know, bring into and introduce to a whole new world. And the white savior complex is the part of the plot that they, that the, that the book goes with to sort of as a framework to hang off of. It's like, yeah. um, it, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a, it's not a trippy, you know, um, uh, Hunter S Thompson type fucking narrative or, uh, uh, uh Tarantino chopped up there. It's, it's almost like there's enough weird shit in this universe that the, it did kind of pick a very sort of traditional plot to go forward. Right. But we, we've called it, uh, in recently we've called it a complex of trope and a, a problem. Uh, both, all, all three of those are yeah. different descriptions and it, you know, it's a way of telling a story. And I don't, as I said, um, I didn't see it. I saw it as a problem kind of before I went into it, you know, you try to clear your mind, but kind of know what's going on. It's like, okay, yeah. this is, this could be a problem. But then I, as I watched it, I'm like, oh no, it's just presenting something and the fact that I really didn't like the main character, I didn't think that he was very likable, you know, Paul. Um, they didn't take motion, a lot of motion to really say, hey, here's why we should like this guy. Hey, yeah. he's going to say, he's going to save a cat in a tree. You know, there weren't any the save the cat moments for those of you who know what I'm referencing there. Um, his, his value is his relationship with his family, right? That's how he's built up. Mm -hmm. He does definitely he's sort of a blank slate. He does have a little bit of a, a Luke Skywalker problem. Um, but I, as opposed to Star Wars, I think sometimes we... What do you mean by that? When you say Luke Skywalker problem, what type of problem are we yeah. talking about? Let's clarify. Uh, Luke is the least interesting character of like the original sort of like... And a lot of heroes yeah. have this. Like like the hero... That's on purpose though, it, right? That, that's what I'm trying to say. Like it's not... We put ourselves in that place. It's not like a bad actor. It's not a this and that. It's sort of like the... the like in a comedy deal, the straight man and the, the wild one, right? Like he's, his role is is very vanilla, right? And, you know, that everyone else around him gets to be interesting. Um, and... And, that, and actors complain about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. When they get absolutely. The, the lead roles. Yeah, 
they want the juicy Han Solo part where they get to ham it up. Yeah, or like Seinfeld so. said in his series, like he was he was the most boring out of everyone there because he said, I want to reflect the stain of comedians real life, which is in real life, they're the quiet ones observing all the weird shit around them. And then they get them mm -hmm. on stage and they, you know, uh, repackage it for everyone. And so in Seinfeld, Seinfeld's Jerry's character was the most boring. Everyone around him was this colorful cast of characters. And so there, there is a little bit of that problem there with him but, or, or that aspect there with him. Um, but it, it, I think for, I think sometimes it's, I, I wouldn't, even though they're different problem, framework, trope, whatever, they can all be valid at the same time. Um, and, and for me, I think that I sort of like see it, but I don't get hung up on it because it, for example, it goes beyond Star Wars in showing that like, you know, Stilgar, when he first meets, um, Leto, Paul's father says like, what do I care? Which essentially says, what do I care if you're a Harkonnen or you're whatever, you're all here to exploit us. I don't care who's here next. Right. Like you're all the same. You're all here to just exploit us. And, you know, in fact, I don't even think he's formed an ally and made a front there. It's like, all right, well, this one will stay out of my, says he'll stay out of my way more than the other ones, at least that were trying to rule us. Like you're no better than the rest. Um, and if you really want to get like touch some like live wire, third rail stuff, like um, I was reading something by a, a former CIA interrogator that um, they captured a, 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 an, an ISIS terrorist. And, and she said the moment that stuck with her where she ended up retiring because it just became too much and she, she sort of lost the faith was when he said, you know, you Americans, when you watch Star Wars, you think you're the people in the desert, the good guys and the empires, the bad one. To us, it's the other way around. We're the rebels that are in the desert and this huge machine comes to stomp us and come through us and and uh, and it just exploit us for our materials. And you, you get a lot more of that out of Dune where it's like two big clashing houses and then the indigenous people are like, who the fuck, do, what do I care about your palace politics and your spacing guilds and your emperors? Like, you're just here to take our shit. Andy, you got anything on the uh, characterization there with uh, Paul and maybe the people around him? Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, I'm just kind of reacting to, you know, uh, what what Phil Corny here is saying, Hero's Journey Architecture, and uh, and Brian's here says, I think Paul clued us in to the future uh, with the with the Jihad vision. That's where the white savior trope was cracked for me. I mean, so, so to me, that's very much it, is that there is a groundwork that is laid going, look, here is the fuel issue, and now we're going to break all of that. And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the fascinating thing of your favorite word. What is there's it? Wait, let some, some version. Some version. <laughs> the fabric saved Paul. By the way, Paul doesn't save the fremen. I got to say, I'm not seeing any of these comments. So like, uh, yeah, all of this is new to me, but like, uh, that, that's cool. There's like a uh, active discussion going on, but, but what I'm curious about is like, so Andy, it feels like you've done some like studying post film, but like. Benja, like, do you, do you get that? Like, just from this film that like, I, I kind of felt like, like, do you watch this film and feel like, oh, they're, they're setting up the hero's journey just to subvert it or, or no. So a little before, uh, I had looked into Dune and I was like, Dune, you mean that silly movie from 84? Uh, I, okay. I, I still liked it, but they, yeah. no, he subverts stuff. And that got me even farther away. I'm like, ah, here we go with the whole subversion thing. <laughs> Being being weird to be weird, right? Yeah. And so I was like, I was actually on the side of the haters, ready to hate this movie. Um, and I I got into it, and I'm starting to watch it, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of how they're forming this persona, this character, um, this way of telling a story. So 
Yeah, when I when I watched it and was seeing this uh, hero's journey thing playing out in the way it was, it wasn't the case of just being weird to be weird or just doing something different to do something different. Uh, I think there are very strong characterization, not necessarily points, but points of view being put out there that are definitely worth exploring. And yeah, there is, at least in my eyes, there was no really good force. There are just these forces moving around and you're curious as to how they move from one scene to the next, between scenes, across characters, across guilds, etc. It's all this, this very interesting flow that got me wrapped up and engrossed into it. Uh, and Andy called it gripping. Um, so I'm, I'm actually did, I'm actually with Andy on this side. Uh, so awesome. amazing, right? Did did Paul engender any any amount of sympathy in his situation? Like how what age does he come off and and um, like they, they, his mother mentioned he had never fought and killed a man when he fought Jamis. Do, do these things sort of build connections with you and the character or is it still sort of standoffish a little bit? It's actually kind of, what do you think? It's actually kind of standoffish to me, um, where I'm not necessarily connected with him. I'm watching his ride, but I'm not like, okay, I'm putting myself in this character's position as I said, right. because because right off the bat, he shows up in the film pretty much fully formed. And all he needs... Right, he's this palace youth who's lived a, a sheltered life. And you never see anybody, you never see any of his peers. And so you have to assume he's just surrounded by the highborn constantly. Right. Probably spoiled out of his Which is mind. kind of funny because I thought that the, the few two moments that he showed happiness... Oh hi! Runs over and hugs someone. It felt like, um, like the like very Luke to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. and plus, his his friend is is, is like his friend is the most lethal killer in the setting. Yeah, and they yeah. run over and like hug. <laughs> I guess like being friends with a lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. A guy kind of what kind of what kind of childhood is that? It's just weird. Well, I mean, well, that and so it's also like, because what? It's it's right after that scene, right right after, right before when we see him training with um with Gertie. And, yeah, with Gertie. Yeah. <laughs> I and they didn't make any dumb jokes, but yes. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't snap anything. Yeah. 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 But so it's a better be, but, but that's, but that's also, you know, that's such a wonderful, again, you know, just like, just really smart pacing in terms of your contrast of seeing here he is with this lethal soldier, mm-hmm. you know, and he, and he's kind of putting him down and this big brother thing. And then immediately contrasted with him basically being, you know, showed up, uh, uh, and kind of like tough loved, you know, uh, with you, we're, we're, we're turning you into a killing machine. Yeah. Right. So to answer, um, like, like the Donnie, to give another answer to your question, usually when I'm watching um, movies, films, or anything that has like the story narrative, even video games, I'm usually thinking of a protagonist. And I don't mean that in the sense of a hero, one guy, or one girl, or one person going out to do something. Somebody driving the action. Not even somebody. I'm thinking of a, an idea, a noun, an idea, place, or thing. Move okay. through the story. So if you say the protagonist is 
the city, you know, then the city's got to fight against taxes or crime or whatever. And at the end of the movie, the entire city's happy because whatever. It could be a city, a house, a group of people, an idea, a concept. The thing that got me with this movie is that it was hard for me to place a central protagonist or idea that I'm following the story through. Yeah. But I didn't dislike it, which was very weird for me. I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily following them or this or that idea or that concept. I'm just watching this whole thing swirl around and flow forward in this story. So that's yeah, up the yeah. so, so, so you, you didn't feel you didn't feel Paul like things centered around Paul as a protagonist. Um I I felt Paul was more of a um yeah, and, and I, he has very little agency. I did not attack Brian. I didn't want that Brian's word here, but you know, yeah. and felt like a pawn. Um, yeah, but he felt like. But a, I mean, a, but he's listening. That still, but that, but that doesn't make that doesn't because, like, even even if like you're talking like you know uh, a city is the protagonist, you know, a city doesn't necessarily have a will of its own. It is shaped and it's molded. Well, sure. Like right. like like we say, corporations are people. A corporation has an idea. It wants to do this. When movies or these these shows are usually presented, it's like, well, the the city or the corporation or the group has this idea of um, here we are, you know, we go through this inciting incident, we have a problem, we meet up with the greater a knowledge, a mentor, it's the hero's journey. It still usually happens in that way. Uh, I, I'm I'm actually agreeing to the fact that I think this subverted it quite a bit in where. Uh-huh. We could use Paul as maybe a point to try to latch on to, but it kind of doesn't work, at least not for me. Is it uh, fair to say, like, is it fair to, like, if what I'm hearing you saying that Paul lacked a purpose or, or like, he, even if he was like, like, not that I were to, if, if I were to put it, if I were to put it like, um, uh, nicely, I would say like, oh, he found his purpose late in the movie, almost like the very last scenes. But like, I could see now through that criticism of like, it's not like, he was hunting for purpose. He didn't have his own, what is my purpose in life? Sort of like where, where that pays off with him finding a purpose of going to the Freeman. Yes. It doesn't even have to be a conscious decision to follow a purpose is what I'm saying. It's, it's, yeah. it's this flow of the story that, that, that follows. And I don't necessarily think that it centers around, you know, Paul's story. I think Paul I think- is a, is a, is a, a spark is a, a a force a um a piece in this whole situation but the more interesting thing about it and why we keep talking about world building and the whole political setting is that they the grander ideas are more of a story than paul himself or any just yeah easily i didn't that's an interesting yeah i could see that yeah i would agree with you and i i, I wonder if that was villeneuve's genius to sort of position Paul as another piece on the board, albeit a very potent piece. Right. I'm wondering if he did that on purpose. Because I, I I noticed the same thing, and now that you mention it, there is sort of a, where's the story here? Type of feel to the movie. Yeah. But like, right? there's, there's a strong purpose behind the father, right? Okay, to, mm-hmm. to um, save his house by walking intentionally into this trap and to ally with this people that the Harkonnens uh, and Empire and everyone else didn't didn't understand. Uh, there's a strong purpose to Duncan. He's the warrior. He's loyal to the family. He goes out in the recon spirit, war to protect people. 
there's a strong purpose to the mother, right? Like protect his, um, her son. There's, there's a little bit of like, okay, what's her sort of like duplicitous? Is it duplicitous? That like, but at least it's there in your question. There is a little bit of like, um, for Paul, if, if, the, the sort of like, you know, if, if, if Dan's getting swept up, yeah, getting swept up in things, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I think to me, um, I think that's why I liked where that ended with him choosing, no, 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 sorry, mom, I'm making a different choice. This is how I'm going to honor my, my dad's insights, you know. You leave me alone. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go to drinks. <laughs> go kill this guy. But, but think about <laughs> it. When him, his decision isn't about him. It's about mm-hmm. an entire line of people, right? Like, he's yeah. the last. And So it's, it's he, 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 for him to even take agency over that is like a, 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 a it's, it's late in the movie, but that's the, the one spark that I saw. I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, I mean. He's driven. My take on this, my, my, my take on this is, yeah, is this, I mean, I absolutely agree. And, and, and that's, and that's, uh, I, I was still able to actually latch onto him as a protagonist. Um, and like I said, to me, the, the thing that really makes the movie for me is that, is that transition of once, you know, he's con- confronted with the, with the, uh, the, uh, the mother, uh, right. And I'm so happy you say that. <laughs> and the whole film takes a turn, right. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It absolutely becomes Jessica's movie at that point. Mm-hmm. And even though he starts, you know, driving, and that's like ultimately his, for lack of a better term, his Obi Wan Kenobi moment, right? Yeah. When his mentors die, and he's left to make a decision and 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 pull forward. But it becomes Jessica's story, watching him become something scary, right? Yeah. Uh. 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 It, 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 and that's fascinating to me, right? That you can take a movie and change its point of view for one character to the next. Um, um, and 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 that's how it I mean, I don't even think I think that the if you really wanted to, if you wanted to take a sheet of paper and beat it out, it's like here's journey structure is still there. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it flips when you when you go, when you change perspective and it it reboots the thing so that you you can't see the structure anymore. Yeah. Because you're now, you're now made to like wonder who, where you're, where you, the audience, uh, uh, allegiance lies, yeah. right? Uh, which creates a, a fascinating um, relationship with you and 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 your your characters. Well, is it a hero's journey or a villain? Right. Well, it's funny that that we, we, yeah, or, or a descent into darkness, right? It's funny that we call it a hero's journey too, because. He doesn't win and he doesn't rescue anyone. There's glimpses of the future where it's the might, right? But if you think about it, like it's a very modern movie in that it's it's almost like an Empire Strikes Back type ending. Like it's it's very downer. Like, you know, it's, yep. it's I was kind of surprised at where it ended. In hindsight, it makes sense. You know, you're setting up this whole world, but it did very much feel like a like a part one. I thought it was bold of the director to put part one in the titles before part two was even greenlit because you know, it's, it, it, it's, 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 they walk into a trap, the trap is triggered and they're fucking crushed. <laughs> like, that's the movie. Like, <laughs> and they're just fleeing for their life. Sure. Right. I, I, they're not really doing much, but fleeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is a worthy, uh, you know, it was, it was a worthy, definitely worthy by, you know, Denis Villeneuve, uh, putting this whole thing out, putting it together. Um, like Andy and I have talked about with the evolution of storytelling. You're not dealing with a story that you have to start from, you know, very central beginning and end cleanly at the end, 
we've talked about it on the internet. We've discussed things on, you know, whatever going into it. I'm watching, Hey, here's Dune explained in five minutes. I'm watching these goofy-ass <laughs> videos, right? So please ask me, don't watch this. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's this whole weirdness about how it was, how stories are told now. And I think you can get a weird, you know, mix up of different types of, uh, more layered storytelling. I was about to say folded, but you know, no puns here except for Al. Um, <laughs> so I, I like what he did. Um, and what I'm wondering now is how this, uh, how this really changes things, sets things up. Um, we're at two hours here, so we'll kind of want to kind of wrap this up and get, let me get your thoughts on where we're going with, uh, this sci-fi and, um, you know, I, we, we all kind of enjoyed it here. So just uh, some some closing thoughts, I guess, on this and where we're going. I'll go first real quick. I don't watch a lot of movies. I mean, I watch a fair amount. So I don't know if there's any other directors like Villeneuve right now, but it, there might be. But I think he's sort of a, a singular, standalone director in the, the movies he's making with Sicario, Blade Runner, this one, and um, Arrival. I don't see a lot of people making movies like him taking sort of the risks with pacing that he does. Blade Runner was a slow burn. This one's pretty slow and sort of stops and starts in a few places. So I hope people copy him because I think he's great and I'll, I'll watch anything he makes. Uh, I don't want to see copies. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't I'm, like, not, I, I'm not even a big fan of uh, Villeneuve. I didn't. I thought Blade Runner was. And I wanted to walk out of that, and I saw it in the great theater. But Sicario, have you seen that one? I liked it. Uh, thought it needed to be a little more punchy in certain ways, but yeah, he's not up there in my list of on top of mind directors as being awesome. Well, we'll we'll agree to disagree then. <laughs> it's a party <laughs> must I, re- I I liked it, but it's not like competent. Wow. Okay. <laughs> no, okay, I'm, okay, I shouldn't have that. And you know, I'm no matter no matter how smart it is, no matter how smart it is, I I just didn't connect with it. How's that? Sure, sure. Good quality. He knows what he's doing. Not necessarily. Yep. I'm connecting what he's doing. This I connect with a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, I won't take it more time. In, in in that vein, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm like trying to temper my expectations of Eternals uh, just because, you know, there is so much buzz around the director, Chloe Zhao, and how she is like, you know, um, schooling filmmakers on filmmaking right now. Um, and and the, 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 you know, the early reports are that you know, she made a Marvel movie that doesn't look anything like a Marvel Marvel movie and doesn't fall into its its trappings. Um, and so that's you know that's interesting to have this you know this uh, uh, Dune, and then two weeks later having um, you know this Chloe Zhao um, uh, Marvel film um, out there to very popular you know pop culture you know franchises that are apparently swinging for the fences. Of terms of storytelling and 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 uh, 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 you know genre, right? So what that does mean, right, for kind of you know that evolution and what comes next, right? It's like we did, you know, did we did we have kind of a a bump in um, 
you know, fantasy filmmaking after Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I, mean, I think we did. And yeah, I think we saw kind of the, that influence kind of impact. What this will have um, is anyone's guess because it's, it is so far reaching, right? Um, I mean, you know, even still, it's like, you, know, you can look back on, on, on um, Lord of the Rings and it's still, it's very straightforward, basic hero's journey storytelling. Um, but, uh, you know, these are not so simple structurally that, you know, what we're talking about. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, well, I mean, it's like simple, simple in a, in a, in a sense. Oh, that yeah, totally. We, we, we get comfortable with stories yes. because they match the structure, right? Yeah. We, we can go into it with a sense of safety. You know, it's, it's, it's McDonald's like is popular for a reason. Right. Well, but not even just McDonald's. I can go any go to any restaurant in America and expect the same three courses of here's super salad, here's the main course, and then there's dessert, right? Yeah. As opposed to, you know, when people go to, you know, a Chinese banquet for the first time and then there's like nine courses yeah. and it's just one dish that shows up and it's like a crab and like, I don't know what... Is this dessert or is this what do, I do with this thing? Right. Um, no, changing that format. Yeah. Right. And I think this is where we always get into the discussion of, uh, you know, you're more on the side of, hey, let's experiment and try things out. I'm yeah. on the side of, look, I want you to try things out, but don't just be weird to be weird. And, you know, <laughs> don't, don't, there's a meme going around like, don't F up Thanksgiving dinner. That's how I'm usually looking at it. <laughs> like, why would you do that to the turkey? Or, you know. <laughs> But anyway, so yeah, and I have the law that leaving trading sticky rice and stuff. I'm just like, you know, I love it. And by the way, I don't know if everyone can see on Instagram. I'm loving the cross court volleys between the two of you. That's that's. But <laughs> uh, I, I I would feel like doing to me. Um, it felt like it, it it struck a nice balance between those two worlds of like, yeah, yeah. There is a little bit of you know Lawrence of Arabia, Dancing with Wolves structure to it because it is based on real life events where these these types of big conquests and and uh and issues came from but also a lot of experimentation and a lot of also just like a palate cleanser from it. but um in or in the spirit of my cross-court uh interaction here i'm going to receive the lob that donnie took and say that art is very subjective but uh, i definitely am on team donnie when it comes to uh the movies this guy's making like it's 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 very much like a christopher nolan like he hits my frequency like i it's he's making original IP the way it should be, um, you know, like Christopher Nolan, uh, his inception is basically his version of a Bond film. Right. It's it's it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, honor match secret service from that one. Um, Tenet is is like more modern take like, you know, but but without actually doing that IP, Tenet literally goes forwards and backwards in time. In the movie itself as well. Like like there's there's all this experiment and the name. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, and I felt like, um, like to me, like I felt like, like I said, a sense of relief when I came out of this, but I also felt like a welcome back. Like I, I do watch a lot of movies. Um, I, this, one of the things I missed the most from all my years of living in San Francisco and then moving down recently is the Metreon that IMAX yes. is, it's, it's hard to describe to people. Like I saw Dark Knight Returns there and I've seen other movies where it was like a religious experience. It was incredible. And like this to me. Um, Andy's group of friends have been, um, no joke, like a massive sanity saver. We've done these Zooms where we've gone through Marvel movies and watched stuff, and it's been great, and it's been a great structure for my life. 
But in terms of recently going back to the movies, this felt like a movie movie. This is what I was looking forward to. I did want that experience of it washing over me, uh, partly because I knew the story too well from the books and stuff. So I kind of wanted to like numb that part of my brain and just take it in. Um, and, and it gives me a lot of hope. Like it, it just gives me a lot of hope for storytelling and sci-fi. And, and frankly, I'm just happy that they're pulling from this very adult complex material where there's so much more of it and you can go deep on it. It's like, it's, it's almost like, Hey, now I can, now, now, this is my version of like the way Andy can quote like Star Trek season three, episode 17 line to, uh, or whatever. Like, you know, like, ah, I can be that guy with Dune now. Uh, because even though it's been, you're looking forward to the, the Dune cinematic universe. I, I, am, <laughs> I am looking forward to the DCU. That's right. Uh, I mean, I mean, that is a question though. Do, I mean, do you think this can push to doing on all? Like all the books, um, I don't know. They get know. really weird. Yeah, they do get weird. Um, and that's fine. like really weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> in, in but in ways that I absolutely love. But here's me too. As 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 many people said, Dune was unfilmable. You know, there's an entire documentary that we haven't I mentioned about how unfilmable it was. Um, this movie was so like true to the spirit of the book and so watchable that I thought, all right, well, whatever, fuck it. I won't underestimate it for other stuff either. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, take up, I'm going to take a rain check on that question until after either part two or, um, the sisterhood series comes out to HBO because the sisterhood series, um, all this weird shit about world building via religion and manipulating people and whatever. Like, if they can handle that right, then I'll be like, oh, fuck it, whatever. Then they can hand, handle talking sandworms or whatever the fuck else comes next, you know. All right. Um, so, yeah, as I said, this uh, exceeded my my expectations. Um, for the first, I don't know how many minutes, I was still a hater while I was watching it. But uh, <laughs> it, it so I had no idea about that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, as I said, my last... My last outing on one of his bigger buddy movie was Blade Runner, and I kind of felt a little let down by that one. Um, Why well, didn't we get together again and talk not about let down or so but, we can correct the record on that? Uh, <laughs> what's he say? So big, so powerful, <laughs> um, so unnecessary. But um, but yeah, as a, as for this, I loved it. Uh, thought it was pretty cool. A lot of layers to it. I uh, really enjoyed it, and I'm really excited to see the evolution of storytelling taking some proper steps i think in in what a lot of what we've been talking about is, hey can you add multiple stories can you reference things can you make something that's uh, understandable to the internet audience who's been you know fighting over this stuff for months or years ahead of the release and can it be enjoyable for people who are just now getting into it do stories have to be so linear do stories have to be so single layered no they can keep going forward and they can grow and I'm really happy happy that this is happening on the sci-fi front, which I think has been kind of lacking, at least for me, in the past couple of years, several years. Yeah. So I uh, want to see more well said stuff. And um, I'm definitely glad that I got all four of us here together to talk this out. This will save me a lot of time and typing and on Facebook. Uh, so <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I've, I've gotten a lot of the questions out of my system. Because, oh, okay, okay. I'll see stuff on Facebook and then, you know, go brush my teeth. And did he really just say that? Okay, let me go back and ask. <laughs> and then if it piles up to a bunch of time that's wasted. I think getting this this discussion out of the way was very good. And um, 
definitely I'll be posting this to the podcast stream so everybody will be able to check it out there. Um, Donnie, Andy, Al, you're great people to have on this and discuss things with. So I want to thank everybody for coming through and be sure to follow along with the podcast and I will see you all later. Thanks for having us. Two years. (laughs) See you. Hey, thanks for joining me on this podcast. You all make everything I do possible and I really do appreciate it. So even if you've got me on social, please visit mrbenja.com and see what's happening and how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, I'll see you next time. Peace.